Let's bow together. No, let's bow together. Let's sit down and let's open up our Bibles. I'll get this right here. And uh, we'll do this. So we're going to be back in Second Peter today. If you've got uh, 1 Peter chapter 2. Man, I am already uh, dropping the ball. Let's start over, okay? Welcome to Crossroads. Uh, it's good to see you here. Oh, my goodness. Let's do this. First uh, Peter chapter 2. Uh, we are going to be continuing just with the first three verses of First Peter uh, chapter 2 this morning. Uh, we've been looking at the great salvation that God offers to us. We looked also at the way that God has provided so much for us and then what we should do in response to that. And, and in chapter 2, Peter's going to come back and kind of guide us through some more of what God would expect from us. And what I hope to accomplish this morning is to, first of all, show you what we are called to do as believers in Christ. We're about to get into a section where he talks about who we are and how we've been called and, and, and that we are this, this royal priesthood of God's. But he kind of gives us a taste of what it means to be that. And, 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 and part of what he's going to call us to do is to set aside some things and then to change some things inside of us. Um, what I want us to see today is that the change that Peter is going to mention today is not something that we just impose upon ourselves. It's something that we are going to need God's spirit and God's help in order to accomplish. And so what I want to do is to show you what we're called to do, which is here in First Peter. Uh, then I want to kind of show you what that's going to look like. And we're going to look at some passages in Psalms that I think will illustrate what it looks like to, to taste and to see that the Lord is good. And then I want to cl- close today with talking about how to make that possible in our lives. Uh, I'm afraid that too many times in Scripture I rush past these verses that says, hey, set aside this and take on this and then let's get on to something else and and I never really stopped to ask the question, how do we do that? What does that look like? And so today I want to kind of pause and, and talk about what it looks like to take on this image of Christ, what it looks like to have a hunger and a longing and a thirst for Christ. Because if those things aren't present in our lives, the truth is we're never going to set aside sin. We're never going to be conformed to the image of Christ. And we're never going to grow up in our salvation. And so I just want to kind of dive in and look at this together today. And, um, and we're going to read together those first three verses again and, and kind of pick apart what they're saying. And then we'll illustrate it with some stuff out of Psalms and then a few other verses uh, in the New Testament. So let's, uh, let's begin here in chapter 2, verse 1. He says, so put away, um, and, and literally in the Greek, that's a, that's a past, uh, past tense word, meaning having already put away. It's something that we've already done. When we became believers, we, we set aside the old man. We, we put him aside. And so he says, put aside or having put aside this old man with, with the malice and deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. So what, what are those things? Those are words that kind of roll off our, our tongue real easy, but we probably ought to stop and define those for ourselves so that we understand what he's asking us to set aside. He says, set aside, first of all, all malice. Now, malice is this evil intent to inflict suffering upon somebody. So it's this heart that wants to, to inflict suffering upon another person. Uh, when we talk about malice, that's, that's what we're talking about. When we talk about deceit, that's, that's deception. You're trying to fool somebody into thinking something that's not right, something that's not true. You may want to deceive them about who you are. You may want to deceive them about who they are. You may want to deceive them about a situation. But, but deceit is this deception that, that's there. So he says, put away evil intent uh, that you have to, to inflict suffering on somebody. Put away this, this deception that we uh, can have in our lives. And then he says, and set aside hypocrisy. 
Uh, remember the word hypocrisy comes from a, a, a term that was used in theater where they, they would have people come on the stage and, and they didn't have enough actors to fill all the roles. And so actors would have two different masks that they would wear. And so an actor would come on and play a role and put on this mask and play this one role. And then he would switch masks and play another role. It's a picture of, of us saying one thing to somebody and saying another thing to somebody else. It's us pretending to be sold out to Jesus and then living like the world the rest of the week. It's that hypocrite, that two-faced is literally what that word means. And so he says, set aside all this, this duplicity, all of this two-facedness that, that, that we can have in our lives. And then set aside envy, he says. And that, that envy is simply wanting what belongs to another person. And then finally, he says, set aside slander, which is these damaging statements that we make. They can be gossip, uh, that slanders somebody else, that damages their reputation, that damages them, hurts them. And as I looked at those, those verses, that, that, that verse and those words this week, I began to think, Lord, what do all those things have in common? What's Peter asking us to set aside? What's he asking us to, to leave behind, to, to, to no longer let it have a place in our lives? And, and really, in my mind, all of those words could be summarized in this they're all efforts to exalt myself over somebody else i want to speak evil of you or i want to see you suffer so that you you're hurt and and i look better i want to slander you and i want to say bad things about you so people will think less of you and maybe more of me uh i i envy what you have because I don't want you to have it. I want to have it. I want to look better than you. Uh, I, I want to deceive you into thinking that I'm somebody that maybe I'm really not. I, I want to look one way in church because that's acceptable. But I want to look another way in the world because out there, that's acceptable. I'm, I'm trying to exalt myself in the eyes of others. And I think that's kind of what, what that theme is there in the first part of this verse. But he's going to come back and he's going to say, I want you to set all of that away. Set aside that desire to exalt yourself. And instead, verse 2, he says, I want you to humble yourself. Like newborn infants. Do infants have power? Prestige? Do they, they have titles and, and, and all these things that exalt them over the rest of the world? No, in fact, in, in, in this day, infants were just infants. They were to be seen and not heard. They were not really valued by some. But he says here, I want you to stop trying to exalt yourself, and I want you said to, to humble yourself as a newborn infant. It's a picture of that new life that Christ is bringing up in us. The, the Bible uses the term again and again that, that those who are born again are, are babies in Christ. It's a picture of how we all come into this relationship with Christ. Now, the truth is, and he'll say this in just a second, we're not meant to stay infants all of our lives, but we come into this relationship with Christ as infants, and, and then we are to grow up into our salvation. And so what he's going to say here is, I want you to, to remember who you are, that you are, you're like a newborn infant, and like that newborn infant, I want you to long for the pure spiritual milk. In other words, I want you to have a craving. I want you to cry out for. I want you to set your heart on this pure spiritual milk just like an infant you don't have to teach an infant <laughs> how to how to crave his or her mother's milk that just comes natural we we don't have to try to teach a child that they need to eat they just do that although i've heard stories my mother-in-law told about waking up janet to make sure she would eat and when our kids slept we let them sleep you know uh but you know some people are just neurotic right Myrn? 
Happy Mother's Day, by the way. You're the best mother-in-law I've ever had. All right? Here we go. We want to crave, okay, this pure spiritual milk. Children come into this world, and, and, and they, they crave their mother's milk. And, and, and they cry to let you know that they're ready for it. They, they, they long for it. And he says, in, in the spiritual world, you and I have, ought to have a longing for this pure spiritual milk that builds us up, that grows us up in our salvation. Now, when I first read about craving this pure spiritual milk, I think about just, just the Word of God, having this craving just for the Word of God. But that's not the only thing that builds us up in our salvation. It's also this relationship that we have with Christ. It's not just what I get from Him or what I learn from Him, but it's, it's, it's having Him and having that relationship with Him. And so he's saying here, I want you to, 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 to crave, to long for this pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. What he's saying to the church there is you haven't arrived yet. There's still more growth that needs to take place. And the only way that growth is going to take place is if you're getting the pure spiritual milk. I think this pure spiritual milk represents this relationship that we have with Jesus that grows through the word, it grows through prayer, it grows through the spiritual disciplines that we are to have in our lives. And, and, And so what he's saying is I want you to set aside something and I want you to put on something else. I want you to set aside this, this, this sinful stuff, but I also want you to fill your heart with a longing for something that's more so that you can grow up into your salvation. I thought about the story that Jesus told about how that, that when a spirit comes out of a man, it roams around the arid places, and if it finds no place to land, it wants to go back to where it came from. It finds the house swept clean, and it enters back into that home with seven of its friends, and the condition of that man is worse than it was at the beginning. So what Peter's trying to say here, I think, is this. It's not enough to sweep the house clean. You need to fill the house with something else. It's not enough for you and I just to avoid sin or, or to try to be morally pure. We need to be filled with God, filled with a longing for God, filled with a desire for the Lord. And I think this is where many Christians today, where we tend to fall short. We focus on sweeping the house clean. But sometimes we fall short with longing for God to fill us. So the house is swept clean, but it's not filled. It's empty and it's hollow. And he's saying here that I want you to rid yourself of some things, but then I want you to fill yourself with something else. And then he qualifies it in verse 3. He says, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. There are many people who profess faith in Jesus Christ who may not have faith in Jesus Christ. They'll come to church and raise their hands and sing the songs and, 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 and go through the service, but they may not have that relationship with Jesus Christ yet. They, they, they can regurgitate the facts of the faith, but if you ask them, have you tasted and seen that God is, is good? They may not know really what you're talking about. I, I know in my head, but, but have you experienced it, you know? Job says at the end of his ordeal, he says, Lord, we, I've, I've heard of your goodness, but now I've experienced that. 
And, and so we have to ask ourselves the question, if indeed we've tasted that the Lord is good. If I'm going to have a craving for something, I don't crave something that I've never had. I was telling Dalton the story of when I went to seminary working on my doctor's degree. Um, we would go for a week at a time, and, and you'd sit in class for eight hours a day, Monday through Friday, sometimes two weeks in a row. And, and, and as those classes would gather the, the first day, we would gather on Monday, and Monday nights we'd always go out and eat together. It was a chance to get to know the other students, a chance to sit down and have a meal with the professor and kind of talk about what we're going to be doing in that class and just a casual way to kind of pull some of our students together. And, and I remember one time, we'd always just go eat in these little places, and, and most of the time it was not too expensive. Sometimes the guys would want to go out to these fancy places in New Orleans. And the, the, I remember one time we went, I couldn't even afford a cup of gumbo. I'm like, yeah, I'll just drink water and we'll go home and eat something later, you know. But this night we went to this restaurant and the guys had been talking all day long about this place in New Orleans that sold these, these smoked barbecued oysters. And I'm not a huge oyster fan. I can eat them, but it's not my favorite. And I thought, I, you know, I don't think I'm really going to care for that. Well, when I got there and opened the menu and saw the price of them, I realized I really didn't care for them because they were a lot more than, than I could afford. Some of the doctoral students there, their church was paying for their tuition, their church was paying for their room and board, their church was paying for their meals while they were gone. It was an all-expense-paid vacation for those guys. And I remember one guy there who had his church credit card and just slaps it down and says, oysters for everybody. And we had like five tables full of guys, and he bought these $30 a plate oysters for everybody. Well, they sent six of them to my table. There was four of us sitting at the table. So I'm doing the math in my head. I'm going, okay, four guys, six oysters. Who's going to get two, you know? And I thought, well, I'm not because I don't even really care for oysters, but I thought I'll take one just to be polite. And I took one and I ate it, and it was the best thing that I, I that was just, I'm shocked. I'm just like, it tasted like steak, the consistency of steak. I never had an oyster that was tasted like a steak. It was always this slimy thing that slides down. It was something else. And then I'm looking at those last two oysters going, all right, who's going to get those, you know? And before I could reach and grab them, somebody else grabbed them, and they were gone. And I got one oyster, and to this day, I've never forgotten the taste of that oyster. I'm like, I didn't miss the oyster until I'd tasted the oyster. There's, there's people who profess faith in Christ who, who say, yeah, I've got a relationship with Jesus. Yeah, I'm saved. Yeah, when I die, I'll go to heaven. But if you ask me, have you tasted and do you see, have you, have you experienced the Lord? And, 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 and do you know the goodness of God firsthand? Not have you read about it somewhere, not as a friend told you about it, not have you had a sermon about it, but have you experienced it? And they would go, I'm really not sure I know what you're talking about. So it's, it's hard to miss something that you've never had. And so Peter says here, I'm, I'm describing for you this longing for the pure spiritual milk. With the understanding, I'm, I'm sure that you've tasted that so far. If indeed you've tasted that the Lord is good. So this is what he wants us to do. He wants you to, we're called to set aside this, this pride and this stuff that would try to exalt ourselves and to humble ourselves and to come before the Lord and just like a baby cry out, God, I need you to, f- to feed me. I need you to nourish me. I need you to, to grow up my soul. Help me to grow up in my salvation. That's what we're called to do. But what does that really look like? I want to share with you some passages out of Psalms this morning that, that describe what it looks like on the inside for a person who, who longs for the Lord. And I can't think of a, a better person to do that than the, the one in the Old Testament that was described as a man after God's own heart, David. In, in Psalm chapter 63, and I'm going to read this out of the NIV this morning. I'm doing that for you, Martin, by the way, okay? 
Me and Martin, we love it. Here we go. Psalm 63, uh, verses 1 through 8 out of the NIV. It says this, O God, you are my God. I earnestly seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My body longs for you. In a dry and a weary land where there is no water. Think about that. In this land, Lord, where nothing else can satisfy. It's a a dry and weary land. There's no water. My body longs for you. My soul thirsts for you. I seek you. You see this this desire where he's longing for the Lord. He says in verse 2, I've seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and your glory. Because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. I will praise you as long as I live, and in your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with the richest of foods. With singing my lips, with, with singing lips, my mouth will praise you. On my bed, I remember you. I think of you throughout the watches of the night. Because you are my help, I will sing in the shadow of your wings. And my soul will cling to you. Your right hand upholds me. Do you hear the longing in David's words where he's longing for more of Christ? He says, I feel so, so dry, and I know, Lord, that you can quench me. My, my heart longs for more of you. I've, I've seen what you can do. I've beheld your power. I've tasted and felt this love of yours, Lord. I've, I've tasted and I've seen that the Lord is good, and now I have a longing for more of that. Have you tasted and have you seen that the Lord is good? Because if you haven't, then this longing that Peter describes is going to be lacking in your life. Let's look in, in Psalm chapter 19. Psalm chapter 19, uh, he again describes this, this, this relationship with the Lord that, that, that I think Peter is, is building upon. It's in Psalm 19, verses 7 through 14. Remember he says to, to long for the pure milk. Here he is. He says, the law of the Lord is perfect. It revives the soul. The statues of the Lord are trustworthy. They make wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right. They give joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant. They give light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure. It endures forever. The ordinances of the Lord are are sure and altogether righteous. They are more precious than gold, than, than much pure gold. They're sweeter than honey, than honey from the comb. By them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. He says, who can discern his errors? And then listen to this desire of of David. He says, forgive my hidden faults. And keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. Then I'll be blameless, innocent of great transgression. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Here he's crying out to the Lord, saying, Lord, I know your word is true. It's trustworthy. I can build my life upon it. But Lord, there's, there's things in my life. There's, there's, there's hidden sins that are there, hidden faults. And Lord, I need you to reveal those to me. I need your word to point those things out so that nothing stands between you and I. Here's David crying out to God to draw him closer and to make him more and more like himself. In Psalm chapter 16, verses 5 through 11, he's praising God for all that God's given to him and all that, that God's blessed him with. He says, Lord, you have assigned me my portion and my cup. 
You have made my lot secure. Listen to this. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Surely I have a delightful inheritance. David's rejoicing in all the blessings that God's already given to him. All the way, he says, the boundary lines, where, what you've entrusted to me, Lord, it's, it's fallen in a good place. And he says in verse 7, I will praise the Lord who counsels me. Even at night, my heart will instruct me. I've set the Lord always before me because he is my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad. My tongue rejoices. My body also will rest secure because you will not abandon me to the grave. You will not let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life and you will fill me with joy in your presence with eternal pleasures at your right hand. David knew where to find his joy. He didn't always get it right, but he knew where to go to find satisfaction. He knew where to go to find delight. In Psalm 86, verses 8 through 13, he says, Among the gods there is none like you, O Lord. No deeds can compare with yours. All all the nations that you've made will come and worship uh, before you, O Lord. Then, Then they will bring glory to your name. For you are great and do marvelous deeds. You alone are God. Because you are God, this is what he says, Teach me your ways, O Lord, and I will walk in your truth. Give me an undivided heart that I may fear your name. And I will praise you, O Lord my God, with all my heart. I will glorify your your name forever, for great is your love towards me, and you have delivered me from the depths of the grave. David was a man that had tasted and seen that the Lord was good. He had tasted and seen what fellowship with God looked like. Now, don't make any mistake about this. David was not perfect, but his soul was satisfied with God. And on those times when David settled for a lesser thing, as all of us do, that lesser thing left a bitter taste in his mouth. Why? Because he had tasted something so much better. David had tasted and seen that the Lord was good. And so he wouldn't settle for lesser things. And, and even when he did and when he slipped and he fell and he, he sinned greatly before God, that sin left a bitter taste in his mouth and he always returned to the one and only who could satisfy his soul. David was not sinless. But David was sincere in his love for the Lord. You and I are, are not sinless But we can be sincere in this love for the Lord. David was not perfect, yet David was passionate in his pursuit of God. When David failed, David came back to the Lord and he restored that fellowship and that relationship with Christ. He longed for him because he had tasted and seen that the Lord was good. And he knew that nothing else could satisfy him. So that's what it looks like. To be a person who's tasted and seen that the Lord is good. But how do we get there? How how do you create that kind of a desire inside of yourself? I've I've tried for years to create that in my own strength. To just 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 grit and say, I'm gonna do this, I'm gonna do it better, I'm gonna love Jesus more, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna fight this stuff and I'm gonna get it right. And in my own strength I always fail. In my own wisdom, I always settle for something less. 
My ways are not his ways. My thoughts are not his thoughts. And, and, and so I need God to do this work inside of me. And, and this is what I really want to try to communicate to you today, is that, that what Peter is calling us to in, in, in 1 Peter chapter 2 is not something that we can produce in ourselves. Peter's not saying, just pick yourself up. Just make up your mind to do these things. He's saying, we need to set aside the old man. We need to, to, to let God renew us and, and, and let God stir in us this desire, this longing for him. Who gives that baby that desire for food? The baby's creator, God does. Who's going to give us a desire for spiritual things? It's the one who recreates us in his image. And so he's saying here, listen, I want you to, to set aside. I want you to long for this milk. Indeed, if you've tasted that the Lord is good. So how do we do that? Well, I've told you in the, in the sermons that we've done leading up to this that that Peter drew heavily upon the, the works of Paul. In Ephesians, Paul is praying a prayer for the Ephesian church. And I want to look at two passages in Ephesians, one in chapter 1 and one in chapter 3. And I want to show you what Paul is praying for the church because I think this is how we get to where Peter wants us to be. In, in, in Ephesians chapter 1, He's talked about the fact that these guys have heard the gospel, they've heard the truth, they've believed in Christ, they were sealed with the Holy Spirit, and, and, and now he gets to verse 15, and he says, for this reason, because you have this relationship with the Lord, you've got the Holy Spirit living inside of you, because of this, for this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord, that's the root, remember we talked about a couple weeks ago, about the difference in the root and the fruit? If you want to change the fruit in your life, you've got to change the root, okay? If you want to, if you want to act differently, you, you've got to have a different heart. You've got to let God do a work inside of you if you want him to produce that stuff on the outside of you. So here's the root. Your, your faith is the root. I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus, and I've heard of your love toward all the saints. That's the fruit. So but because you've got this relationship with Jesus, it changes the way that you love other people. There's the root and the fruit. And he says, I do not cease to give thanks for you, Remembering you in my prayers, and here's what he's asking, verse 17. Asking that the Lord, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, that he may give you the spirit of wisdom. Notice he doesn't say that you might acquire it, that you might go get it, that you might discover it. He says, I'm praying that the Lord will give this to you. It's a, it's a grace gift that God gives to us, that God imparts to us spiritual wisdom and revelation. So he's asking that God do a work in us to, to give us a, 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 some spiritual wisdom, to, to open our eyes to, to the truth. Revelation is not something that we discover. It's something that God makes known to us. That's just by definition. It's, it's something that, that God reveals to us. So he says, I'm asking that he give you the spirit of wisdom. That's, that's his Holy Spirit that's going to live inside of us. And, and he, he provides you revelation in the knowledge of him. Revelation in the knowledge of him. I pray that God reveals more and more of himself to you. When we enter into this relationship with Christ, God desires to make himself known to us. In fact, if he hadn't made himself known to us, we never could have entered that relationship to begin with. But God wants to take us, the scripture says, from glory to glory to glory. He wants us to grow up in this salvation, as Peter says. So this is what Paul's praying. It'll give you a spirit of wisdom. He'll give you this, this spirit of revelation in the knowledge of him, this personal relationship with him. Having the eyes of your heart enlightened. In other words, you're having your heart, the eyes of your heart open to the truth, to who God is. So that you may know 
What is the hope to which he's called you? What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? According to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in heavenly places. It's interesting that, that what Paul writes here, let me just, just kind of bullet point this real quick. But he says, there's some things I'm asking the Lord to make known to you, to reveal to you, to give you knowledge of. And, and, and he says here, I want you to know about the hope to which he's called you. Go back to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. He talks about that hope. He talks about the glorious inheritance. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 4. He talks about the inheritance that we have. He says, I want you to know his power toward us. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 5. talks about that. I want you to know about this, this resurrection of Jesus Christ and, and how God exerted the power to raise Christ. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. So these are very similar to, to, to each other, what, what we're seeing here. But he says, I want you to have the eyes of your heart opened. And I wonder sometimes if our eyes have truly been opened to who he is, to his majesty, to his glory, to his goodness, to his grace. I thought about a story Jesus leaving Jericho. It's in Matthew chapter 20, if you want to look there real quick. But it's a story of Jesus leaving Jericho. And as he departs uh, and, and heads uh, out of Jericho, it says a great crowd followed him. This is Matthew 20, verse 29. Verse 30 says, And behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. But the crowd rebuked them. The crowd didn't think they were worthy. They were undeserving. In that day and time, they thought if you were blind or if you were lame or if you had a problem, that, that you must have sinned, that you must have done something wrong, that you probably deserve, you were getting what you deserved. And they even told them to be silent, it says. They said, don't bother Jesus. He's got more important things to do. But they wouldn't be quiet. They cried out all the more. Do you know why those two blind men cried out all the more? Because they understood that Jesus was their only hope. If Jesus couldn't fix their problem, their problem would remain a problem. I wonder if we've come to that understanding ourselves. That if I'm ever going to get fixed, it's not because Rob fixes Rob. It's going to be because Rob surrenders to the Lord and allows God to do what God wants to do in my life. You see, I think that we've bought this American lie that we can somehow fix ourselves. That we can somehow better our condition. That we can somehow just improve our lives. That we can make our own destiny, do our own thing. And that if we just work hard enough and work long enough and, and, and just hit it right a few times, that, that we are somehow going to be self-sufficient. And while that sounds great, it's completely the opposite of what the gospel says. We've even come as Americans to say, God helps those who help themselves. And the gospel says the, the exact opposite. That God's come to help those who can't help themselves. And so here we see in this passage that he's, he's saying, look, they're crying out for this. And, and these guys are crying out all the more. They realize that Jesus was their only hope. Man, how I pray that God helps us to see that he is our only hope. The only hope for us being delivered from sin. The only hope for me putting the old man to rest. The, the only hope for me having a longing for the Lord, like he talks about in 2 Peter, is that God does a work in me. 
Because I can't do that on my own. I may can do it for an hour, and I may can do it for a week, but I can't do it over the long haul. I always go back to lesser things. And, and so what he's trying to say here is these guys are crying out, and, and the crowd says, be quiet. They rebuke them, but they cry out all the more. And they cry out again, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And stopping, Jesus called them. And he asked them a question that sounds silly at first. He says, what do you want me to do for you? Is Jesus that oblivious to what they need? These are blind men on the side of the road who are crying out for Jesus to have mercy on them. Mercy, have compassion, have, feel sorry for us, do whatever you got to do, but Lord, out of, your, out of your, your, your pity for us, do something. And Jesus stops and says, hey, what, what do you want? What do you want me to do for you? Why would Jesus ask that question? I think Jesus asked the question for two different reasons. Number one, I think Jesus is trying to measure whether they realize what their real need is. You see, these, these beggars are sitting on the side of the road, and, and they're blind men, and they're sitting on the side of the road, and, and they're probably begging for money. They don't expect every person to come by to be able to heal them, do they? So they're sitting there, and they're trying to raise some money for their family. And, and, and it's like a red light drive, you know? Anybody passes by, we just hope somebody will throw something in the bucket. And I think Jesus is measuring what they really want. Do you want something temporary? you want another dollar in your bucket? Or do you want to be made different? I think Jesus asked us the same question. What, what is it that you want? Why, why do you come to church? Why do you seek religion? Why do you, why do you come and work? Why do you do these things? Is it, is it so that you can just increase your status a little bit in society? Or do you want real change? You, you mean to throw a coin in your bucket? Or do you mean to give you sight? I think that's why Jesus is asking, what is it you want me to do? And I think that'd be a question that would be wise to answer today. Why do we do this every week? What do, you, what do you want God to do? Just make your life a little more comfortable? Give you some, some pride and respect in, in the eyes of others in, in this town? Why do we do what we do? Do you want a temporary fix or do you want something permanent? Do you want him to throw a coin in your bucket? Or do you really want Jesus to change your entire life? I think the second reason Jesus asked this is, 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 is he wants to know, do you trust me to be able to provide it? Think about this. Jesus is asking them to put voice to their request. Now, that would look pretty stupid if Jesus didn't do it. It would look really stupid if Jesus couldn't do it. So he's testing their faith here. Do you really believe that I would want to do this and that I can do this and that I will do this? It's easy to, to, to wish silently that Jesus would do something. It's another thing to have to speak it out loud in front of the crowd who's told you to sit down and shut up and leave them alone. So what do you want me to do for you? Are you willing to risk being ridiculed by others? And they said to Jesus, Lord, let our eyes be opened. I don't need another dollar in my bucket. I need you to radically transform 
my life. Are we just after the dollar? Or, or, or the, 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 whatever the world can give us? Or are we really after a complete change of life? Let our eyes be open. And Jesus, in pity, touched their eyes. And immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. He changed their life. And in, in response to that, they got up and did what they could not do before, which is to follow Jesus down the road. This is what Paul is praying for there in Ephesians chapter 1. I'm praying that the eyes of your heart could be enlightened, not just, not just to give you some more facts, but to, to, to radically revolutionize your life where you will get up and you'll follow Jesus wherever that takes you and whatever that looks like. That's what he's calling us to. And that's what Paul prays for there. So how do we get there? We, we get there by, by coming to the Lord and saying, Lord, I, I need this. Praying for one another that we could all have that, that, that God would open our eyes, that God would give us wisdom and revelation, that God would help us to see all these things that are, that are ours, that we could see the riches of his inheritance. The immeasurable greatness of God's power toward us who believe. This is what he's calling us to. And the way that we get it is by coming before the Lord. Notice Paul doesn't say to his readers, hey, listen, guys, I want you to suck it up and I want you to get this right. He says, I'm praying for you night and day that God will grant these things to you. We need the grace of God to be able to help us have those things. Ephesians chapter 3, Paul continues this prayer for the the church. In, In Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 and following, He says this, he says, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. He knows that's where the answer is going to come from. And he says, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant to you, or may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit. So here he's saying, according to his riches, how how limited are God's riches? They're, they're limitless. So according to this limitless glory of God, that God may grant to you, he may give you the grace to be strengthened with power through his spirit. So that's his doing and not ours. And, and it's, it's strengthened with power through his spirit. Where? In your inner being. This is where God always starts the work that he does in our lives, is on the inside. God doesn't start with the fruit but he starts with the root. He says, let me change your heart. Let me, let me change you from the inside out, that he, he, may, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. In other words, that Christ may, that his presence may, may change your heart through faith so that you being rooted and grounded in love Stuff that's rooted is alive. The roots are in the ground, they're in the soil, they're they're living. And and grounded, they're anchored. So you be rooted and grounded in love. There's the fruit. So we've got the root, we've got the fruit. And he says that you may have strength to comprehend. In other words, the spiritual capacity to fully grasp with all the saints what is the breadth and the length, the height and the depth. And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge please don't miss this paul is not asking that they be given just more knowledge if i say 
to a friend or to my child, I want you to know real love. I want you to know real love. Am I saying to them, I want you to go and read a book about love? Do I, am I saying to them, I want you to be able to define for me love? What am I saying when I say to them, I want you to know real love? What am I saying? I want you to experience it. I want you to feel. I want you to know it. I want you to, to have encountered it. I want that to be a, a part of something that, that you have experienced. And, and that's what Paul's saying here. I want you to know the love of Christ, not just to be able to define it, not just to, to be able to, to, to read about it, but I want you to be able to experience the love of Christ that surpasses all knowledge. Now, that word knowledge is used twice in that one verse, right? I want you to know something that surpasses knowledge. Well, I want you to know, I want you to experience is the first way that that word's used. The second way that it's used is a different Greek word that means I want you to have the intelligence or the understanding of it. So, in other words, I want you to know or to experience the love of Christ that surpasses human intelligence, human understanding. We can't even put it into words. It's so great. So, I want you to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. That's tasting and seeing that Christ is good. Why? So that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. There's that longing for more of him. I want you to taste and see that the Lord is good. Why? So that you will want to taste and see even more of God's goodness. That you'll be filled, not just have one bite of an oyster at a place in New Orleans, but that you'll be filled full again and again and again with this fullness of God. And then he says, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think. In other words, God is able to exceed our greatest expectations. According to the power that's at work within us, that's his power. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Here's what he's saying. I want you to taste and to see how good God is. Because once you taste and see how good God is, you you can't be satisfied with lesser things. I fear that sometimes the reason we're so satisfied with lesser things is that we haven't tasted the best thing. We talk about it. We sing about it. we, we, We have discussions about it. But we really don't taste it we really don't know it and today my prayer is that we would come to the place that we say to God God you know what I'm not sure that I know you in all of your fullness I'm not sure God that I've ever truly tasted and seen how good you are we give you a head nod But reality is, I, I don't know. And when we go back to First Peter as we close, here's what he's saying when he says, if you've indeed tasted. He's saying, what I'm asking you to do by setting aside the sin and to being filled with this longing 
It's only possible to those who have tasted and have seen. And guys, the way that we taste and we see that the Lord is good is through that personal relationship with Jesus, personal relationship with Christ. And if you don't have that yet this morning, that's where it all begins. The the rest of what we're going to describe, all the other things that we're going to to be talking about as we go through the series, they, they will mean very little to you. Until you have a relationship with Jesus Christ. My prayer for our church, for myself, is that we might long for more of Jesus than we've ever had before. That he might give us a taste, just a a taste of what that's like that creates in us this this mouth-watering desire for more of him. That I don't pick up my Bible and read just because I've got to preach another sermon next week. That I don't just have a quiet time so I can check it off and say, I had a quiet time today. That I don't just get alone in prayer because, well, that's what the preacher says I ought to do. But that there's this deep desire inside of me to know God's will. To know God personally. To, to fellowship with him, to talk to him, to bring my concerns to him, to bring my joy and my praise and my glory to him. That, that this is just something that, that outflows out of my heart. It's not something that's imposed from the, the outside, but it's, it's a fountain that flows from deep within. And that's what God desires for us to have. And I wonder today if we've got that or not. We need, and here's the key, we need Christ to create the craving. Remember the old saying, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink? And somebody else says, oh, but I can make him thirsty. We need God to make us thirsty. And and sometimes that's through suffering. And sometimes that's through trials. And sometimes that's through things that we do not enjoy at all. But it teaches us not to depend upon ourselves, but to depend upon the Lord, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians. Paul says, I don't want you to be ignorant about what we've been through. It's been tough, man, and we despaired even of life. Why would God let me go through that? And he says, because God was teaching me not to depend upon Paul, but to depend upon God who raises the dead. We need for God to make us thirsty if we're ever going to long for him. And once we have a taste of who he is, nothing else in this world will satisfy. Doesn't mean we won't try other things, but they'll leave us empty. And the only thing that will satisfy is Jesus Christ. So we need Christ to create the craving. We need Christ to help us to taste and to see how good he really is. And then and only then will we ever, ever refuse to settle for less and to simply be satisfied with him. I pray that we might discover what that is. And that if you don't know that today firsthand, I don't mean that you haven't heard a million sermons on it, but you haven't, you're not experiencing that moment by moment, day by day. You go to bed thinking about Jesus. You wake up thinking about Jesus. You, you live your life thinking about how you can represent him in this world. That's what it means to long for the pure spiritual milk. And that only happens if indeed we've tasted that the Lord is good. Let's pray together. And if you need for God to create a a hunger and a thirst inside of you, maybe this morning that would simply be your prayer. God, would you create a, a hunger and a thirst in me like never before? 
Give me that desire. Philippians 4, or Philippians 2.13 says it's God that works in us both to, to will and to work for his good pleasure. Maybe today you say, God, I don't even have that desire. I need you to place that, des- that, that desire deep within me. Cultivate that and help me to long for more of you and want more of you. Let's pray.